My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. It's great to have you all with us. Uh, you guys came on Controversy Sunday, and you're going to figure out why here in just a little bit. You know why if you were here last week. Uh, we're going to dive right in. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. This is God's Word. We're going to read the passage together. We're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into our teaching so Romans chapter 9, you can follow along on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible. Let's read together. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through, offspring shall your, sorry, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Let's pray together now. God, your word says, blessed are you, and blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walks in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. God, we seek you now, and we do, we want to seek you with our whole heart. And God, we know that that is useless unless you seek us, unless you act first, unless you open our hearts and you be our teacher. And we pray that you would do that now by your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray as we talk about a sensitive topic this morning that you would be exceedingly gracious to us, that you would meet us in our questions, that you would meet us in our skepticism, sometimes even our cynicism. And that you would make us people who long to know your truth, make us people who submit to you and seek to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, your son, who loved us and died for us. Amen. All right, so as I said, this is Controversy Sunday, deeply controversial topic that we're talking about this morning. We're talking about this idea of predestination, this idea of election, which we just read about. And our motivation for studying predestination really it was spurred by our teaching last week, if you remember, and you were here with us last week. Paul, who's the author of this letter to the Romans that we've been studying through, he actually unpacked this idea last week, this idea that God is sovereign, that God's a king. And as a sovereign king, he has absolute control, absolute authority, and absolute power over all things everything. That's good things and bad things, big things and small things. 
Paul says this sovereignty, in fact, and this is the controversial point, Paul says this sovereignty, his rule and control over all things, even extends to the eternal destiny of human beings. That our eternal outcome is controlled not by us, but actually by God even before the foundation of the earth. And we read about this last week. Paul put it in these terms. He said this is something we know. He says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are calling to his, that's God's purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see, God in eternity past, he knew a people, he foreknew them. And then he predestined those people to be called to his son Jesus, to be forgiven of their sins. That's what that word justification means, to be forgiven of their sins. And ultimately, to be glorified in heaven with Jesus and have eternal life. So that's the teaching. So Paul in the letter to the Romans mentions predestination specifically, right? And he he mentions it explicitly. And here's the problem that that would have spurred, right? And I'm just going to kind of set up the table here. Here's the problem that that would have brought up for a first century audience. See, people, when they heard that, they would have immediately thought, they would have immediately thought and asked, well, who are God's chosen people? Who are God's predestined people? Isn't God's chosen people Israel? That's what the Old Testament said, that Israel was God's chosen people. And so Paul, he even makes mention of this. He says, they're the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who's God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So do you see the problem here? We have God's people, the chosen people, Israel, and God's chosen Savior, Jesus. If God's word is true, if God really elects people and predestines people, then why isn't all of Israel believing in Jesus? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to eternal life. So what gives Paul, and Paul's response to this, is that God's word and his plan have not failed. He says that. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed because he says, here's the thing. It's not that Israel as a national or an ethnic group is all saved, No, but not all that are of Israel belong to Israel. God's election, his choice of some people is not based on an ethnicity, not based on anything in a person. It's based strictly on the one who calls, based strictly on God's free favor, based strictly on God's free grace. And that's what Paul says in verse 6. He says there was Abraham, right? He was the first person called by God. And even Abraham had two children. Do you remember their names? There was Ishmael. He was the firstborn. He was the oldest. He should have received all the rights, all the privileges of being the firstborn male son of Abraham. But then there was Isaac. And what God says and what Paul says is that through Isaac, 
is where the promise is going to be fulfilled. So even though you have two descendants of Abraham, not all of Israel are truly of Israel. Not all children of Abraham by the flesh are of Abraham. It's only those whom God has promised, whom God has chosen, whom God's elected to eternal life. He says nothing's based on a person's beliefs. Nothing's based on what a person does. It's strictly by God's grace and free grace alone. So when you read the rest of Romans chapter 9, we're going to do this over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see that what Paul's doing is he's actually answering questions and objections that come up with this doctrine of predestination, this doctrine of election. And so we're going to look at those over the next couple of weeks. And you've probably asked some of these questions before, questions like this, right? Well, doesn't that mean that God's unjust? That God chooses some for salvation and passes over others. Doesn't that make God unjust, unfair? Maybe you've asked that question. And we're going to get to that next week, actually. Or maybe you've asked the question, well, why does God choose some and not others? And we're going to get to that next week as well. We're going to talk about this question this morning and next week. I guarantee you're thinking this. Well, what about free will? Right? If God chooses all things and he's sovereign over all things and our destinies were actually chosen before the foundation of the world, then does that mean we don't have free will? We're going to get to that this week and dive into it deeper next week. But before we begin, I, I just have to acknowledge this is an emotional teaching, right? This is something that you could probably even feel right now, many of you. I remember the first time that I really contemplated this teaching of the Bible, and I was in the shower. I was thinking about it, because that's what I do. I think about theological topics in the shower. <laughs> and I noticed, as I'm thinking about this, and I'm taking the shampoo out of my hair, that my view of God was really being stretched in ways that was actually profoundly and deeply uncomfortable for the first time. And I started to feel this real tension because I believed the Bible. I believed the Bible. I was committed to the Bible. But for really the first time ever, I actually started disagreeing with something in the Bible. And that was a real challenge, something I had to really wrestle with. And you might be feeling that same way. You might be feeling that same way right now. And so my hope and my approach in all of this is with this emotionally charged doctrine and teaching of the Bible, I want to handle it with sensitivity and with patience. In fact, after this service, I'm just going to hang around here, and if you have specific questions, you can come up and you can ask. I want to make sure that that's available. You can also have my email address. I'll give that to you so we can communicate that way. And I also want to acknowledge this before we dive in, that there's probably two audiences here this morning. There's audience number one, and you're like, you know what's coming, and you're, you're two thumbs up. You're like, I'm going to love this. This is great. Yes. And this is a historic debate between what are known as Calvinists and Arminians, and you're a Calvinist, and you're like, yeah, Calvin, woo. All right. Two thumbs up. Here's my challenge to you this morning. If you find yourself in that audience, the audience that I would probably find myself in now, and if I were hearing this, I would need to be challenged with this. My challenge to you is just because you believe the right things does not mean you are intellectually or spiritually superior to any other person. When Paul talks about predestination, when he talks about election, it doesn't lead him to spiritual pride. It actually leads him to worship. Worship of God. 
So he even says these words. At the end of this section, talking about predestination, Paul is just overwhelmed by how big and how magnificent and how worshipful God is. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So it leads him to worship, not superiority. That's my challenge for you. If you're two thumbs up this morning, I want you to have that posture of worship, not pride. But there is another audience here this morning, and you're, let's just say you're in the not two thumbs up category, okay? And you're thinking, I know what Calvinism is, all Calvinists are jerks, and you're probably right, right? Most Calvinists are jerks. But here's the thing, here's the thing. You might be saying, I'm not going to like this, I didn't grow up with this belief, I don't like this, this isn't the sort of God I want to worship, this God who chooses my challenge to you you have to hear this. My challenge to you is this. Are your objections to this teaching from Scripture? Are they from the Bible? You have to ask yourself the question, is this true? Because if it is true, then as followers of Jesus, we're called to believe the things that God has truly revealed. And when push comes to shove, are you going to believe the things that God has clearly revealed? Or are you going to believe the things that you only like that God has revealed? That's a challenge for each and every one of us. So again, my challenge to those who are not in the thumbs up category, make sure your objections and dislike of this teaching are from the Bible and no other place. So this morning, let me just give you two headings of where we're going to go. First heading, very simple, what is predestination? We're just going to pause here a little bit because we want to understand what Paul is going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. So this, this morning, we're going to be looking at a lot of different texts. And just to get nailed down, what sometimes can feel like nailing jello to the wall, what is predestination? But then the second thing that we're going to talk about is the most common question that I hear for people who oppose predestination and election, and then the most common objection that I hear when people oppose election and predestination. So first, let's start here. What is predestination? And first and foremost, before we go anywhere else, you have to realize that predestination is biblical. It's biblical. Because some people hear this, and their thought is, well, that's just something philosophical, right? This idea or this debate is really philosophical. It's something outside of Scripture imposed on the Bible. But if you read the Bible carefully, you'll observe very quickly that predestination is not imposed on the Bible. It's actually something that raises right out of the Bible. So again, let's just look at the verse that we already looked at just to kind of set our grounding. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. We read this last week. Paul said it again. He said, And we know that for those whom God, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we see predestination is about God's purpose, God's will, right? For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then in verse 30, he says, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. So just a couple of observations here. Notice, directly intertwined with this issue of predestination has to do with your life, has to do with my life, has to do with God's will for your life, and also entwined in this teaching is issues of eternal destiny. 
You can kind of think of it like this long chain, right? He starts with these people God foreknew at the very beginning. That's link number one. And those people God knew from all eternity, he predestined. That's link number two. Those whom he predestined, he called to his son Jesus. Those whom he called to his son Jesus, another link, he justified, meaning he forgave them of their sins, gave them faith to believe in Jesus, and then ultimately he glorifies those people, the last link in the chain. So it's one long chain link from eternity past to eternity future. So you see that. Let's look at another one of Paul's letters where predestination is mentioned. This comes from Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul there, he starts with this prayer out to God. And this prayer starts like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you hear here already, right? God wants to give a spiritual blessing to those who are in Jesus. And who are the people in Jesus? Well, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of God's will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Then finally, verse 11, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So again, just a quick glance at this passage, right? You see that chain. You see the chain again, right? God wanted to spiritually bless a people from all eternity, so he chose a people, called a people, predestined a people into his son Jesus to inherit eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and perfect holiness in eternity. And so I bring all this up, this passage in Romans, this passage in Ephesians, just to set down this, that this teaching is not imposed on the Bible. It's not just philosophical. It rises directly from the Bible. Do you see that? So the Bible speaks clearly, explicitly, and regularly about predestination. So taking these two passages, right, let's make a definition of what predestination is. I think this is a fair, straightforward definition. Ready? It's this. Predestination is the biblical teaching that God sovereignly chooses our eternal destiny, heaven or hell, before the foundation of the world. So let me read that again. Predestination is the biblical teaching that God sovereignly, right, as a king, chooses our eternal destiny, heaven or hell, before the foundation of the world. And now I think that's a fair definition, right? Because we have God chooses those whom he's going to save. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. We just read it, even as he chose us, right? This choice was before creation. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And this has to do with where we will spend eternity, right? That's why he uses this language of glory. And he uses this language of an inheritance that we're receiving, which is the kingdom of God, eternal life with God in heaven. So that's the definition of predestination. And when you have this definition, it's kind of like a black light 
right? And if, if you've ever had like mold inspectors come to your house, they'll shine these really nice black lights and they'll just show you how much mold you didn't know was really there. And you can start seeing it in places you didn't know where it was. And it's the same thing with the Bible. Once you see predestination, you can't not see it everywhere throughout the Bible. So in the Old Testament, for instance, this is Genesis chapter 18. This is referring to Abraham. And we see the same idea of God choosing a people. We're told, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So there's Abraham, right? Being chosen by God to lead a people, a special people, to walk in the way of the Lord. And then we're told Israel, the descendants from Abraham, we're told that they're chosen in Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're told, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you were more in number than all the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. So just like Abraham, right? God chose Israel and he brings them out of Egypt to display his great salvation and is going to bring them to the promised land, which is supposed to show forth God's great plans for his people. And then skip forward just about a thousand years, the great prophet Isaiah, he's actually having this prophecy about eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth, right? Heaven on earth. And he gives this great prophecy telling us what it's going to be like. And he says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountain, my chosen shall possess it. He's talking about this great mountain that people will go to and they'll worship God there and they'll love God there. And who are the people that are going to be there? God's chosen. And then later on, Isaiah gives another image of this. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. See, heaven is going to be a place where nothing can take us out of the land. Nothing can take us out of God's kingdom. Why? Because God has chosen us to be there. He's chosen a people to be there. So here you see all the way back to Abraham, right, through the descendants of Israel, all the way up to the prophets, God's been choosing a people out of a fallen world, out of grace, to love and be his treasured possession who will inherit every spiritual blessing and eternal life. But as much as the Old Testament talks about this, the person who actually talks about it most is Jesus himself. So for instance, Jesus in John chapter 13, Jesus is... Uh, having a final supper with all of his disciples. And we're told that Jesus is about to be betrayed. And looking at these people who are gathered around him, Jesus, after giving this teaching, says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. See, what he's saying is out of these 12 followers, he knows whom he's chosen. 
And he knows 11 of them, even though they fall away, even though they wander from him, he's going to bring back to himself. But one person, Judas, is not chosen. In fact, he's going to betray Jesus that very night. Later on, Jesus says something very similar. He's talking to his disciples again, and he says, That greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, and if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not do what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask my Father in his name, in my name, he may give to you. A little later on, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. So here you have Jesus, right, just picking up on what the Old Testament had said before. This distinction, he says, is between a fallen world in rebellion against God and God, out of his grace and love, takes a people in rebellion against him living in darkness, and he brings them into a relationship with God. He brings them into the kingdom of God. And that's why, like, when you're reading the New Testament, there's this word that keeps popping up, and you see it in a lot of the letters that a lot of the New Testament writers write. They refer to God's people as the elect, the elect. It literally means chosen ones, right? Think of an election. What do you do in an election? We just had an election, right? Too soon? Okay. (laughs) So we just had an election, and what do you do in an election, right? You go into the voting booth, and you pick one candidate. You pick one person, and you have your reasons for it. I don't have to know what those are, but you pick one person. You elect one person. So that's why the New Testament, when it refers to the people of God, it refers to them as the elect. Paul, when he's writing a letter to Titus, he opens the letter. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect, his chosen ones, and their knowledge in the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Peter, another one of Jesus' followers, actually called the chief apostle, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So election, right, like this black light, predestination is all throughout the Bible. You see its fingerprints everywhere, this idea that God chooses those whom he's going to save. And now, just as a reminder, you might not like this idea. I get that. I get it. But again, when push comes to shove, are you going to believe the things that God's clearly revealed or only the things that you like that God has revealed? And now... I know some of you might be saying, well, hold on. I believe in predestination, but I think the reason that God chooses some and passes over others is because God sees in advance those whom are going to believe in Jesus. And then because he sees, because he's perfectly all-knowing who's going to believe in Jesus, he then chooses those people as a response to them having faith. You can kind of think of it this way, right? You have this like long hallway, this long corridor, 
And it's like God is standing at the, the front or the beginning of this long corridor, and he sees down the corridor of time, and he sees, well, person A, B, and C, they're going to believe in Jesus, but person D, E, and F, they're not going to believe in Jesus. So therefore, I'm going to select, I'm going to choose A, B, and C, because I see that they're going to have faith, and I'm going to draw them to myself. And that seems like a reasonable understanding of predestination, but I want you to see there are several severe complications with that view of predestination. The first is that it just glaringly contradicts other parts of the Bible. So, for instance, we already saw in John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said explicitly, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So it's not that somebody chose God first and then he cho chose those people. No, it's the exact opposite. Another New Testament writer puts it this way. He says, we love because he first loved us. So see, in all of this, it's pretty clear. God did not choose us or love us because we chose him or loved him first. No, it's the exact opposite. Now, if you have your Bibles, look again at just our text that we're looking at this morning, Romans chapter 9. And you see here, this is really the first objection that Paul works with, this idea that God foreknows a certain people, chooses those people because he thinks that they're going to have faith, and that's the reason why. But Paul says it never worked that way. Beginning in verse 10, we're told that when Isaac had a twin set of twin boys with Rebekah, we're told when Rebekah had conceived children by Isaac, one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older, that is uh, Esau, shall serve the younger, that is Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So you see this passage is teaching before good or bad, right? God didn't foresee the faith of Jacob and then choose Jacob. No, before they could do anything, either good or bad, God chose Jacob and passed over Esau. And by the way, if God could look down the corridor of time, which he can, but if God looked down the corridor of time and saw Jacob, he would have saw a real charlatan of a guy. If you know the story, there's nothing good in Jacob. He's a swindler, he's a stealer, he's a liar. Jacob I've loved, but Esau I have hated. So the Bible tells us faith is not why God chooses us, but we have faith because God chose us and he gives us the grace to believe. In our confession of sin this morning, right, we read from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, there we were told, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith is not your own doing, but even that is a gift of God. Why? So that no one may boast. See, we have faith because God gave us faith before we could believe in him. So to say God chose us because we have faith puts the cart before the horse. And as you know, that is not a good way to pull a horse. But here's the biggest complication. So the first complication with this idea is that it kind of contradicts the Bible. But then the second, and I think this is maybe one of the bigger implications of this idea of God foreseeing our faith and choosing us on the basis of that, is that I think it contradicts grace. And let me tell you why. 
See, we as Christians believe that we are saved by God's grace, God's free grace, free grace. Because grace by definition means unmerited favor, undeserved love. Put this in an illustration. Parents, if you're like me, you're not above bribery, right? I tell my kids quite a bit. I tell them, if you're good, okay, we're going, we're going to do this thing. And if you're good, after we're done with that thing, we can get Chick-fil-A, right? Kids love Chick-fil-A. But then we go and do that thing, and are my kids good? No. Terrible. And they do things I don't want them to do. I'm constantly irritated. I constantly have have to discipline them. And then we get in the car, and their first question is, are we getting (laughs) Chick-fil-A? And my response is, I want to teach you something, kids. I want to teach you about God's grace. See, do you deserve Chick-fil-A? Remember how many times God or, uh, Dad had to discipline you in there? Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you earn Chick-fil-A? No, no, we don't deserve it. I'm going to teach you about grace, kids. We're going to go get Chick-fil-A instead. Now, as a parent, that sounds like an absolutely awful parenting technique, doesn't it? Or is it? Maybe I want to show my kids that they can receive a good gift from their father even though they did nothing to deserve it. I also want a number two spicy chicken with waffle fries and a Dr. Pepper. (laughs) But, But that's beside the point. (laughs) Or a peppermint chip milkshake. Points this, if God looks down the corridor of time, he sees our faith and he loves us based on our choice, our good works, our good deed, our good faith, and that's why he chooses us, friends, that's not grace. That is a deserved reward. It's God giving us something because we did something good. That's not grace. And Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 11. And I have to remind myself of these words all the time. (coughs) Paul said, if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Why? Because otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So friends, we have a choice, right? We can have amazing, free, undeserved, and unconditional grace. Or on the other hand, we can have merit. We can have something owed to us because we made the right choice and it's God giving us something because we did something good. And now, if you're anything like me, I think the reason that I struggled with this idea of election and predestination the most was because of actually what it said about me. Maybe that's the reason that you struggle about this, right? Because this teaching of election, when I really understood it, said that I am no better than the person I am no better than the person who doesn't believe in Jesus or doesn't follow Jesus. I'm no better than that person. See, if it was my faith, my choice, my spiritual accomplishments, my right decisions, I could point to other people and I could say, see, that's why my life's not a mess. Because I made the right choices. I did the right things. But if God loves me, 
before I loved him. And if I didn't choose him, but he chose me, and if it's not on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace, then the only difference between me and the people whose life was a mess was grace. It was God's unmerited love and favor for me, not based on anything that I did. And that's humbling. Everybody know the song Amazing Grace by John Newton? You know the first line of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And it was only once I truly realized that I was a wretch that I could finally sing about God's amazing grace. I am no better than any other wretch. And that's humbling. And this kind of came to a fore. My wife and I, we were living in Nashville, and we read this story uh, from the Denver Post when we were living in Nashville about somebody that we went to school with. Hannah and I went to Pomona High School just north of here. And we heard this story. This girl that we knew, she was in my grade. She was with her boyfriend. They were driving drunk in the middle of the night. They hit a person who was crossing the street, drove off. And I remember thinking, how could she do that? How irresponsible. What a terrible choice. How dumb. Do you, do you know how stupid it is to drive drunk? You know who else has driven drunk? Me. I don't anymore. And you know why I stand here today? Because of grace. The grace that God protected me from my stupidity, my bad choices, my irresponsibility. God protected me by his grace from my horrible decisions. But even more than that, he called me to be his treasured possession, to be his child, to find forgiveness of my stupidity in Jesus, his only son. In other words, grace, the unmerited, amazing grace that saved a wretch, a drunk, driving, irresponsible, dumb, and selfish wretch like me. Any other wretches in here? It's humbling, isn't it? So what is predestination? Well, predestination is the biblical teaching of God's sovereign, free grace for sinners who do not deserve his love. And now that we've defined predestination, let's look at the question, right? So this is the biggest question that come in people's mind today. It was a problem during Paul's time as well, but this is the one that we struggle with the most. Question number one is this, well, what about free will? What about free will? And the rationale goes something like this, right? If God has sovereignly chosen eternity before the foundation of the world, doesn't that suggest that free will is just a charade, that free will doesn't exist? So what about free will? Well, let's start here. First, you got to start here that I think it's legitimate, we can all agree to this, that we're all conscious of the fact that as human beings, we are limited in countless ways, that our freedom is restricted in countless ways. So take, for instance, men multitasking, right? We're terrible at this. At least my wife tells me I'm terrible at this. If I'm reading a book, right, if I'm reading a book, my mind is on the book. And as much as I would love to be free to hear my wife tell me about the great thing she's going to buy at home goods. 
And as much as I'd love to hear my son talk about, you know, his transformer and my daughter tell me about her, her little kitty cat, as much as I'd love to be free to give my attention to all these things, and I truly would, my mind is limited. It is completely on the book because my mind is not as free as it possibly could be. It's limited in some ways. Or take our bodies, right? Just think of your body. I would love to be free to play in the NHL, right? But my body's limited. I wasn't born in Canada. I have relatively good teeth, and I'm not six foot five. So I can't play in the NHL. I'll never play in the NHL. I'd love to be free to play for the Colorado Avalanche or heaven forbid, like the Anaheim Mighty Ducks or something like that. But I'm not, I can't because my body's limits what I'm free to do. Now, if that's the case for every part of our human nature, right? That we're limited, our minds, our emotions, our desires, our bodies, every part of us is limited. It's not completely free. Why on earth do we think, well, not our will. Our will's completely free. Our, our will isn't bound by anything. Well, why would that be the case? Doesn't seem to be the case with everything else. And now, here's the thing. I do believe there is such thing as free will. I do believe it. I believe we have free will. However, the Bible makes this clear. And here's the point that you have to understand. This is the biggest point. The Bible makes it clear that our will, right, our ability to choose is driven by our desires. Our will is driven by our desires. I would have you say that with me, but I think that's cheesy when preachers do that. But that's what you gotta leave here with, right? Our will is driven by our desires. You think of it this way, right? I face this every single night, and I've shared this before. I have this choice before me every single night. I could eat ice cream, which I love. I love bluebell ice cream cookies and cream, and I could eat ice cream and watch Friends. Or I can go work out, right? I face this choice every single night. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I always choose the one that I desire most. If I desire watching Ross and Friends with Millennium, then I'm going to choose that. If I desire to work out, lower my blood pressure, work off those excess sugars that I put on from the ice cream the night before, then I'm going to work out. But my desire drives my will. And the Bible says this emphatically, that our greatest desire apart from God's grace is sin. In other words, our desire as fallen creatures is not moving toward God, to embrace God, to make right choices for God, and to follow God. No, our desires are actually moving in the complete opposite direction as fallen sinful creatures. So take the United States, okay? Ostensibly a Christian nation, some people would say. Well, I was just reading these stats from Gallup Research. This is their research that they do regularly on uh, religion in the, state, or in the United States. Here are the numbers. This was data pretty much from 2017 to 2020. 87% of Americans say that they believe in God. So 87%. But dig a little deeper into the data. 47% of those are members of churches. 38% of those, when you dig deeper, regularly attend worship. Dig even deeper. 9% read scripture regularly. So a vast majority of people, right, say, we follow God, we believe in God. 
But when you dig into the data, you show, it shows that our desire isn't for God. Our desire isn't to worship God, be a part of his church, hear from him by reading what he's given us. And all this to illustrate that even though we say we believe in God, our desires are moving in the opposite direction, aren't they? Now, somebody might be asking the question, well, but aren't we made in God's image? We're made in God's image, and doesn't that mean we're going to gravitate toward a relationship with God? And yes, we're made in God's image. We're made for a relationship with him. Yet, all of that has been radically distorted and radically twisted because of sin. So after God says that we are made in his image and Adam and Eve fall into sin, we're told in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, this is right before God's about to bring a flood on the world. God looks out at every single human heart, every person that exists, and we're told, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So now our gravitation, our desires are not for God. No, they're moving away from him. Great, you know, writers in the past, they even pick up on this, this idea of just how fallen our desires are. This comes from Fedor Dostoevsky. He wrote this book, The Brothers Karamazov, and it's the story about this guy named Alyosha. He's a monk who lives in, in Russia, and his elder, who he had followed his entire life, is dying. So he's starting to follow this new elder, and his name uh, is Father Farapot. And Father Farapot's kind of this weird guy. He says that he can see visions and he can kind of see things other people can't because he's utterly spiritual. And Father Farapot is talking to Alyosha and he says, do you see all the devils around here? And he's talking about this monastic community, right? In this monastic community, he's saying, I see devils everywhere. And Alyosha responds, around where? Father Farapot responds, Everywhere. I was up in Father Superior's last year and haven't been back since. I saw one devil sitting on a monk's chest, hiding under his shirt. Another monk had been peeking out of his pocket, looking shifty-eyed. Another, because he was afraid, hid from me. Another one had been living in another monk's stomach, his unclean belly. And there was one who had one hanging around his neck, clinging to him, and he was carrying him around without even seeing him. And see, what Dostoevsky is pointing out is that even the holiest person in the world, right? Somebody could even go to a monastery, separate themselves from the world, and you know what their desire is still for? Sin. Because sin touches every part of our body, every part of our human nature. Paul, he puts this another way, and I don't want to labor this point too much, but I almost can't stress it enough. Paul says that this condition of sin in our lives means that we are spiritually dead. He puts it this way. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Let me ask you, if there was a dead person sitting up here right now, just imagine, right? Let's, let's not make this a reality. There's a dead person sitting up here, and I came to that dead person. I said, choose Jesus. How effective would that be? Or I said, make a choice for Jesus. Won't you have faith in him? He died for you. He's dead. He can't. And then Paul says this deadness moves in a particular direction. He says, we, it, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, dead people 
cannot have a will that freely chooses Jesus because they're dead and moving in an opposite direction. See, election and predestination says God, out of the entire human race of humankind running away from him in spiritual death, he comes in, he changes our desires. He comes in and acts first to change our heart of stone into our heart of flesh, and he raises people who are spiritually dead to spiritual life, gives them faith so that they can believe in Jesus. Paul says that very thing. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now see, this is really important. Because predestination and election, they're often caricatured, kind of like a cartoon. And we're told that, well, God takes, there's all these innocent people. And God just arbitrarily, with all these innocent people who want to go to heaven, he's saying, I'm going to take only this amount of people. And these people who want to come to heaven, no, I'm going to give them a stiff arm. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that, no, there's these guilty people who don't desire God who are following the course of the world, following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, and following the sinful natures and inclinations of their flesh and their desires of their mind. And God, out of those people, graciously opens their eyes and graciously changes their hearts and graciously works in their lives so that they'll believe in his son Jesus and have eternal life with him. So do we have free will? Yes. Yes. But our will is driven by our desires. And if God does not choose us and change us by his grace, we will always desire sin and we will gravitate toward hell. And what we need is God to change our desires by his sovereign grace. We love God because he first loved us. But here's the thing. I believe in our hearts. We actually all believe this. <laughs> you might not be convinced intellectually, and that's fine. We, we really think there's a place where you can wrestle with this stuff, right? You don't have to believe in predestination to worship here. It is something we obviously teach. But here's the thing. I believe you believe this in your heart. And here's why. Two facts show this. J.I. Packer pointed this out. J.I. Packer was an evangelical scholar and writer. He wrote, two facts show this. In the first place, when you pray... You give thanks to God for your conversion. You thank God. God, thank you for converting me. Thank you for giving me spiritual life. Thank you for changing me. Now, why do you do that? Because in your heart, you know that God is entirely responsible for it. But here's another reason that I know you believe this, is that you pray for the conversion of others. You pray, God, change so-and-so's heart. God, radically bring that person to life. God, save that person. You want God to intervene with that person's will, that person's choice, that person's way of life, and you want God to act supernaturally on that person. And why do you do that if ultimately at the end of the day you think it's God's will and God's choice? Or sorry, that person's will and that person's choice. So I like what J.I. Packer said. He said, quote, On our feet we may have arguments about it, 
predestination, but on our knees we're all agreed. See, we pray like we believe in election, in predestination, don't we? So that brings us to our last question. I'm going to wrap up here, just two minutes or so. Last question. It's actually more of an objection. It sounds something like this. That's just unfair. It's just this visceral reaction, right? That is unfair. And by fair, I have to concede this. If by fair you mean that God treats everybody equally, then yes, God is unfair. He is. One author put it this way. God appeared to Moses in a way he didn't appear to Hammurabi. God gave blessing to Israel that he did not give to Persia. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus in a way he did not manifest himself to Pilate. He gave the Neelands fantastically good looks. You know? It's not fair, I know. But here, let me allow, allow me to answer your question or your objection. It's not fair with another question. Friends, do you want God to be fair with you? Do you want God to give you what you deserve? Or do you want grace? Do you want the unmerited, undeserved, completely free gift of God and his love? Or do you want God to be fair with you? Because grace is not fair. Grace is God sovereignly giving love even though we don't deserve it. Now as a pastor, you know, one of the most common concerns that I hear is that I'm not sure that God loves me. Or I didn't experience the God of love regularly growing up. Or I still don't experience the love of God. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. I'm convinced that if you believe in this doctrine of election, that God loves you because he loves you, and chose you because he chose you, not because of anything that you did, you will experience the love and a grace of God in completely fresh and new ways. I'm convinced of that. You'll begin to comprehend the depths of God's love for you. I'll just use this as kind of a final closing remark. My wife and I, we just went to vacation in San Diego, <clears throat> and we're walking on the beach in the middle of the morning, and some lady's walking down the beach with her dog, and she takes the dog off the leash, and it starts running kind of free, right? Meanwhile, our little two-year-old twins and our uh, two other kids, six-year-old and four-year-old, are walking down toward the beach the same time this dog is coming. And now, Hannah says, and this is a direct quote, she says, if that dog does anything to my children, the non-Christian Hannah's going to come out. And now Hannah, Hannah disputes this point, but I think she said this. I think she followed that with, up with, I'm going to punch that lady in the face. <laughs> she disputes that she said that. I remember that distinctly, though. <laughs> and here's the point. The point is that God does not care. He is not interested in the Christian Hannah. He's not. God is not interested or loving Hannah because of how good of a Christian she is. He does not love her because of how many good decisions she makes, how many right choices she makes, how much faith she has, how many prayers she recites. No, God loves Hannah because God loves Hannah, period. He's a gracious, loving God. God loved Hannah before the foundation of the earth because she had done nothing, either good or bad, that would have earned his love. And in love, he predestined her in Jesus for adoption as his daughter. And out of love for her, he sent his son to die for the non-Christian Hannah. 
Friends, that is the love of God, the amazing grace of God, and it's rooted in the electing sovereign choice of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the gracious, electing, magnificent, glorious, all-powerful God of the universe. Your ways are not our ways. Your ways are inscrutable. Your knowledge unsearchable, God. We don't know why you love us. We don't know why you chose to love us. But God, you do love us. You loved us before the foundation of the earth, before we could do neither good nor bad. And God, you so loved us that you sent your son to die for us so that we might be holy and blameless before you in love predestining us for adoption as sons and daughters before the foundation of the earth. God, I pray that we would see the beauty of that electing love. I pray that we would believe in it with all of our heart. And I pray that it would deeply comfort us knowing that there is nothing, neither good nor bad, that we can do to deserve it. We pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior and your Son. Amen.